Welcome to this bonus episode of Why I'm Anti-War. I've decided to release uh, the full discussion between Dylan and I. Uh, I'm going to be putting more of these out uh, as bonus content from some of the back episodes and my future episodes. Uh, please enjoy. All right, I think we're good. Hey, Dylan, how's it going? Hey, how are you? I'm great. Um, so uh, you reached out to me after I, I put a, like a mass call out for people who were veterans of Fallujah because I'm putting together a like uh, uh, sort of group chat or I'm putting together a thing on biting the bullet. I don't know if you listen to them, um, but I'm putting I'm together a thing where like some people who were in Fallujah, like kind of retell the story because frankly, there's parts of it I don't even know. And then you reached out, I think, to you know sort of be like well i've heard, i understand what you're doing but i'm not a fallujah veteran but i see you were in iraq or afghanistan at the same time um so is that is that kind of correct is that uh yeah yeah that's that's exactly it man i just uh was was kind of looking out there for other people who were in the same mindset as me i don't know trying to build a little bit of a social circle and i kind of saw what it was that you were doing and, and thought it was cool so i wanted to reach out to you more, more than anything, just to, uh, to see what resources you could help me get in contact with to help other veterans. Like I'm, I'm a part of some activist groups and we're always looking for things like that to get involved with, but this is a, a fun side effect of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, fellow I was talking to the other day was talking about how just, you know, for me, it's a little therapeutic to retell. Like I've, I've kind of, I'm at a point now where I'm fine. You know what I mean? But it's therapeutic. It was therapeutic to get the story out. So a guy was telling me like for him telling his, his story the other day really like was a relief, like something off his chest. And for me doing this project of trying to change people's minds or give them some more ammunition to change someone else's mind like through emotion really is what I'm trying to go for. But like, um, by adding that, uh, by putting that out there, he was saying how that for me that like, that I'm actually trying to do something to affect change, like feels better too. You know what I mean? Rather than just kind of wallowing, you know? Yeah. You've got to be working towards something. It, it, it's a lot better. Yeah. Um, I'll have to think, I, I know there's a bunch of people, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk offline, um, I'll shoot to whatever resources I can think of that are kind of more in the uh, helping folks out vein. Um, but you, um, how did you come to, uh, give me, a, why don't you tell me a little bit of your background, how you came to, before you were anti-war, who were you? <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, uh, I guess before I was anti-war, so I was just a nobody then. Um, uh, <laughs> Pretty, pretty much my story is like just as, as textbook recruiters wet dream as you could possibly go for. <laughs> I was um, I was just like a, a normal uh, teenage kid whose parents were overly nice to him and uh -huh. had never really experienced anything difficult in my life. The point when I was 17, becoming 18, where I was moving forward into a, a world where I was increasingly being expected to make adult decisions, like go to college. I was starting that process at a local community college and just absolutely failing because I, I lacked whatever, it, whatever drive was necessary to allow me to kind of focus that onto the task at hand. 
And uh, I, I really found myself in this weird existential crisis almost where I didn't know what I was doing. And I had, I'm just wasting money on college classes I wasn't passing. And uh, I woke up one day without knowing what I was going to do. And I remembered I had been talking to a friend of mine uh, who was an Iraq veteran. Mm-hmm. He was an, an 88 Mike. And that, that's, a, that's a truck driver, motor, motor transport. Um, and he had, at the time, when, when it was a war mostly fought with um, IEDs, uh, kind of talked that up to be what some 18-year-old would want to be involved in. And, mm-hmm. and uh, like an idiot teenager, I woke up that morning and took his advice and drove <laughs> to the recruiter's office to get the process started. Uh, did great on my ASVABs and got a good GT score and everything. I had a whole world of possibility opened up to me as far as uh, jobs that I could have chosen within the Army. And I went straight for the one that he had talked about <laughs> and was uh, 88 Mike. That was my, that was my first uh, job classification in the Army was a uh, motor transport operator. Mm-hmm. So wasted a little bit more time in the civilian world and immediately got that process started just because I had no clue what I was doing with my life and uh, found myself in mm-hmm. going through that process, kind of just, just progressing along uh, and, and what I expected would be a fairly standard life trajectory for someone in the military as a uh, motor transport operator. I did not have much time to be involved in that, though. Uh, mm-hmm. Shortly after, we were at a, a, a company, WarX, which is a training exercise where you simulate uh, convoy operations in a battlefield environment. Hopefully, the clarifications are useful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's um, where, where you simulate like this wartime environment in your job. And, and our job was to to drive stuff around and provide logistics support and security. You've got tram wraps and gun trucks and things that kind of support, support TCN vehicles and whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing this exercise and we uh, were trying to get it off the ground day one. And we could not get the radios between the trucks to work. There were the Singar radios back then yeah. just operating simplex. And we could not get any of the trucks to talk to one another at all. And I was just an absolute magic, the gathering nerd in my past life, you know, <laughs> playing on computers and everything. And I just told my, uh, my staff sergeant at the time, I was like, look, I, I think I can take care of this. Just let me take a look at it. And sure enough, I was able to get those radios working. And, uh, shortly after that, um, uh, electronic warfare officer in the 29 series became a, uh, uh, um, military occupational specialty for the army as well. It used mm-hmm. to be only uh, Navy and I would imagine air force probably had it too, but it was more of a Navy kind of thing. EWOs mm-hmm. and EWTs. And that was basically that, that became a job in the army shortly after I had ex- shown my nerd skills to my, mm-hmm. uh, my, my leadership there. And they sent me right off to get split, split classification and uh, that pretty much wrote the story of my life. Wow. <laughs> that that one uh, that one experience of uh, exhibiting some nerdiness. Uh, I was reclassed, went to school for, uh, for for that, and that's pretty much what I did from there on, um, all the way up until my deployment. Now, between then and there, there were some some duty stations, but just mostly mm-hmm. the typical ones, some boring ones, right? Fort Hood. Everybody yeah. has that experience. <laughs> Uh, some some really awesome ones as we were kind of pre-staging for our deployment in uh, Kyrgyzstan. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with where that is. Uh, I'm trying. Is that where Manas is? 
Yeah, it's Manas yeah. Air Base. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's like right between Russia and Mongolia. Mm-hmm. And it is just among the most beautiful places in the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you you wake up on this Air Force base, right? Which is amazing because yep. you get to drink beer there. And mm-hmm. uh, on the on the horizon are the Himalayas. Yeah. And so this is kind of the thing that you see immediately before you... <laughs> before you get out of Dodge and go to Afghanistan. But uh, that was awesome. You know, got to do the normal army thing, but, but that got me to my deployment. Um, my, my unit, we were a, a pretty tight knit group at the time. We, mm-hmm. um, I was uh, E4 at the time that I got into country, but was doing the duties of an E5 generally, right? Like acting like a team lead, kind of helping out younger guys and other specialists even because we uh, we got spun up and, and kind of cross-leveled over to support another unit that was there in uh, Afghanistan at the time at Camp Leatherneck, which is in the near near to the Sangin Valley, mm-hmm. um, right, in the, right in the Helmand province and pretty much in the middle of the desert though. Yep. And... We, we got ourselves situated there and we, we, we started our mission. Um, everything was pretty routine for deployment. I think for the most part, I was mostly surprised how incredibly dull a combat deployment in the Helmand province was because uh, all the stories that we heard from everybody else on the base made it out to be this, this hellish place, right? Just dust and, and car bombs. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was not my experience for the first little while that we were there. And uh, we had a good time. We, we got to know uh, some, some people from the Georgian army and the Estonian army. Mm-hmm. And they, were, uh, they were located there on post as well and even had some, some fun jokes with the Georgians and Estonians sitting in the smoke mm-hmm. pit, had a good time. And uh, then we kind of got ramped up and started running missions. And... I don't know where you were while you were over there, but we, we kind of ran the normal routes uh, out, of, out of Leatherneck and up near Fob Tobruk and uh, around the around Farah, which is like a okay, yeah, so that would be yeah. out west. Yeah, you'd get on yeah. the ring road and head west from because uh, yeah. Leatherneck is south of the ring road. You kind of go up just a little ways north and then you can get on that ring road and head west over towards uh, Farah and Harat. Yeah, and like our, our primary mission while we were there was to uh, to support these white trucks. Uh, those are uh, typically TCN or mm-hmm. um, third country national vehicles or, or local people that are there who are uh, driving um, non-military vehicles. Mm-hmm. And we were supporting uh, vehicles that were hauling hydrogen mostly for the uh, for the aerostats. Oh. So above a lot of the bases, there are these big blimp looking things with apparently really great cameras in them, although I have no clue. <laughs> um, and uh, we were we were supporting them while they got those white trucks back and forth between the fobs that that required those aerostats for kind of mm-hmm. I don't know fob security or whatever they were doing with them. Yeah. And really, for for the most part, everything was kind of boring and and dull. The only real experience that we had um, was. Uh, our, our convoy getting hit with a, a VBIED with a guy on a, a tricycle. And um, that was 
that was really the only thing that that came up over the course of our deployment there. And you know, that was just something that people joked about at the time, mostly for the rest of the time that we were there. And that was the thing that I really started to notice as time went on is that everything that we were doing there was just something that we were joking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if any of that ever struck me the way that it does now at the time, but, but we were just doing these routine things that were our jobs and, and running missions around this country. But all the little mud huts and things were essentially where people lived, right? Like, like just huge fucking MRAPs driving through somebody's neighborhood. Mm -hmm. With, with absolute disregard for anything. And, and in fact, maybe even detest for the people that were there. And, and that was kind of the culture at the time with how you rationalized even being there in their neighborhood, forcing their cars off the road so you could do your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think any of that stuff really struck me the way that it does now back then. But um, the, the rest of the deployment went, went pretty swimmingly. The, the deployment itself was not really anything to write home about. It was pretty typical. It was mm -hmm. something that we had gotten ourselves really ramped up for and, and kind of in that zone. And then there was very little actual activity that ever occurred while we were there. But uh, my, my contract ended mm -hmm. while I was there. So I got to um, experience what it was like to immediately go from having really ramped myself up for war or what I thought was going to be war and really was not <laughs> like ramping myself up for war um, to immediately go into a civilian lifestyle because I was burned out, right? We had just mm -hmm. finished a deployment. I, I had the opportunity to get out of the army and I, I wanted to jump at it. Yeah. And that that's what I did. So I went from being in the army, which is, um, I guess I skipped over some parts, but yeah. pretty much the only adult career that I had mm -hmm. at that point, you know, I had enlisted um, very young. Yeah. And that was really pretty much all that I did to immediately getting out of deployment in Afghanistan and, and coming home. And, and starting to look for a civilian career. And I guess I had a little bit of that experience that you get when you've spent too long driving on the highway and then you get home and your brain can't relax. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I, get, I get that. Where I, like for the first hour after a long drive, I just can't shut up. I have to like, I have to talk for an hour. <laughs> yeah, except that that experience lasted for months <laughs> mm -hmm. it was and and uh you know we we were while we were there we were sleeping we would circle the trucks up and we would sleep outside and you were always kind of on guard trying to to pay attention for things and everything along the side of the road you thought was a bomb and i i had that experience as well just coming back everything along the side of the road looked like a bomb but i don't know that there was necessarily any trauma associated with my deployments or anything that I would, I would call that. It just mm -hmm. was like a more of like a being really spun up and then just let loose out yeah. in the open to just, to just figure it all out. 
-hmm. and whatever support structure, whatever sense of community I had there, whatever, and, and basically every friend I had ever made in my adult life, I just was gone from mm -hmm. right? and out into the civilian world and looking for a job. And we had a soldier from our unit, uh, Nick, Nick Beswick, mm -hmm. who was a, a good kid and was like a really close friend of mine. And I kind of mentored him a little bit. He was like a young guy from the Jersey shore and he was a dumbass and funny. And uh, he, he got out in kind of the same manner that I did as well. And uh, a couple of months, maybe six or seven months after our deployment ended, he had gotten a job at um, Baltimore City Police Department, I think. Okay. Uh, and uh, he killed himself. Mm. And everybody loved Nick. And, and that's kind of when everything started to hit me a little bit. Imagine. Not so much about deployment as it was the, the, the dynamic shift in, in what it was like to exist in these two different realities. So for someone like him, and I think for someone like me a, a little bit, there is this sense of knowing what your place in life is, maybe potentially feeling like you're a part of something or that there is at least some directly set goal in mind that you're supposed to be moving toward, at least while you're in, and especially while you're on deployment, you know, you're just focusing day to day and mm -hmm. getting to the next thing. And then you get out and the real world just is not like that. Nobody tells you what to do. Yeah. There, and, and especially when you're just young idiots, like we were, you have this horrible crisis of meaning. And, uh, I definitely imagine that that was the case for him. I know that it was the case for me where you, you get involved. I, uh, I, I got involved with uh, some, something similar. Um, you get involved with a, a career like that. You get to see the way that the civilian world operates. Not that the military world is any better. In fact, it is mm -hmm. the problem that it is the thing that creates this problem. But you, you get out and you just don't know who you are or what you're doing. And, and as time goes on, you wonder if whatever the thing was that you thought provided you some sense of structure in your life was actually the thing that was creating the sense of destabilization that you experience when you're out. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was the case for me. I, I got out and I had uh, an interesting experience of, of kind of starting to feel like whatever it was that I thought was some hard-coded aspect of my identity and was like a thing that I should be proud of was, was actually the opposite of that, that it was this, this force of chaos in the world and that that was me. <laughs> and and i got ramped up and excited about it excited to go drive through these people's fucking neighborhoods and mess mm -hmm. their lives up and uh especially now you know that i have kids i i i wonder that i wonder what it must be like for those people there to have this experience so many of them losing a child right and having like 
everything that was foundational in their life immediately pulled out from under them by someone who just treats them like absolute dog shit. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm rambling. No, (laughs) I mean, I see like, and and I'm hearing so much of things that have good, very similar experiences. You know what I mean? For me, like, I was a little, I, I hear a little bit of myself in the sense that you were talking about how when you were before joining, you were like in this existential and I was very like, very into the what's my purpose, purpose of existence kind of frame of mind. And I think that's how the military ends up finding a lot of people like that. It might be related to, I mean, it might even be related to why there's the crisis of suicide and stuff is they, they, they provide this sense of purpose for people that don't have one. But really, if you are that kind of thoughtful person who's really kind of trying to figure out what's the purpose and then you start to see that the military is the structure is kind of not only an element of chaos in the world but it's a self-living it doesn't have a purpose in its own right it doesn't know what it, and then that unfounding reality you, you like right. your search 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 for purpose you think you find purpose and then if you realize that ain't it like it can leave you really feeling alone and with like how where where, where do i go you know what i mean what what am I going to do now? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, definitely I, did for me. Um, I'm sorry. Talking about talking about Nick gets me a little messed up. But no, I, it's it's. I mean, yeah, it's, that was it's the good case to go through those. Sure. Um, you know, and talk through them because you know, I, there's things that everyone gets. Everyone's messed up. So I apologize for that. You know, um, but I imagine then, like. So you got home and you kind of found this, like you started trying to find other careers that were similar and you, and that's when the introspection kind of came is like, what, what happened to this people? What did we, what, what role did we play with the people in Afghanistan? What, how do we affect their lives? So kind of what, what was my, as a, as a chess piece in, Mm -hmm. in kind of this thing, what was, what was my role in, in whatever it was that, had taken part over there. And I think the thing that got really hard for me is that I, I don't know that I really had much of a role. You know, I was there, mm-hmm. I was shifted around, I expended resources and spent money. Right. And, and it, it kind of struck me that that's what the point of all of it was. You know, I did a lot of thinking um, mm-hmm. after Nick died and uh, realize that that is kind of the way that it operates is is it is really there's no greater purpose there's no functional reason for us to be in someone else's country for for really any any reason anyone that does not pose an immediate existential threat and even then you should really think long and hard before you decide to to destroy people's lives on on the kind of scale that we do there but um I, I got thinking about it. That it is really, it is not that it is just a sense of chaos, but it is just this horrible churning machine that mm. just takes people with a crisis of conscience, like like Nick or like myself, and and it tells them that it's going to give them something, uses them to spend some money so it can circulate that back through itself and the people that would benefit from it, and then just gets rid of them because you're just totally useless at that point. And you never gained anything, right? You never gained any marketable skill. At no point in the real world is your neighbor ever going to come over and ask you to jam a remote IED for them. 
So you're not gonna, you're, you're, it's just, it's just you, everything that you learned, everything that you thought was a fundamental characteristic of your personality is just this hollow, horrible, nothing that was designed to spend someone else's money. And, and that is really where I ended up on all of it. And I was really neutral about all of, all, all of this before that. I didn't have much of a stance on any of it, but, but that's, that's what it got me thinking about is that it is just this, this terrible churn. And the, the price really is, is our money, but it's other people's lives. Like, and, and it is just the most insidious and horrible way that it operates. It just picks these countries that no one could ever possibly care about. Right. It picks picks places where no one's ever going to hear what's happening. Right. Where, yeah. where no one is ever going to see face to face or, or have a or likely to do that. And then it takes people who are in a, a frame of mind and puts them in those countries in order to just. In order to just to enact some sort of a, a, a plan to. I don't know, benefit the defense industrial complex or, or Boeing or something. And that doesn't change the fact that the countries where this is happening, they're no different than here, right? The people that live over there are just like us, right? Mm -hmm. They wake up and they want their kids to do well, right? And they want them to be happy and they try and find whatever is the best food to give to their daughter that day or something and come up with something to be entertained and spend a little bit of time with their wife and then I, and then I don't know, they're on fire. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, so, so where did you kind of go from there? Like, yeah, I mean, I can, I, 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 I've been kind of in those depths myself before and like, what kind of like made you start thinking differently about it or gave you some clarity about it? Oh man. Yeah. I'm going to sound like a, uh, I'm going to sound like a go with the crowder, but uh, honestly, really, uh, Jordan Peterson. Oh. I don't know if that means anything to yeah. you. Um, yeah, so I um, I found some of his lectures online for his Maps of Meaning series, and I started listening to them on repeat. And I really, really like focusing on what what it means to play out your role in the world and, and kind of looking at the types of people that are out there with like a, like an archetypal foundation. So to look at like, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy. There are characteristics of both of these people and to deny the fact that there are clearly good and clearly bad things that go on in the world and clearly good and clearly bad stories that play themselves out on the, on a both personal but also global scale is, is foolish those are they're things that are happening and, and you can be like a contributing force to either side of that with every action that you decide to take in your life so I don't know I got into listening to him a lot I, I started to form a little bit of what was a personal philosophy of I guess it, I didn't realize that it was pacifism although pacifism is kind of the um the inevitable output of enough empathy mm -hmm. it just is where where you end up right and that that's kind of what it was i started thinking about well how can i become a better person myself and uh and 
the, the lessons that really struck me were just that there's really no easy way to go about doing anything. Everything has to be done the hard way. And anything that you find in your life that is easy to do is probably worthless. So that, that was it. I just, I tried to become a better person and I started to work toward those things. And then I realized that there were other systems playing out at the national and global scale that uh, were just as damaging and likely played into some of the things that I experienced that I felt were directly related to my experience in the military. That, that on kind of just the national scale, there was... Uh, this, this same kind of terrible churn going on with, with the welfare system, which is mm-hmm. putting up just a little bit of something to keep people interested and then pulling the rug out from under them, essentially. And, and I started to form uh, outside of just my personal philosophy of, of doing hard work and trying to be a good person, a little bit more of a political philosophy and, uh, and, and kind of ended up where I am now, which is as probably the most confusing libertarian because I never had any education in Austrian economics or the fundamental realities of libertarianism at all. I ended up getting here via some kind of, I don't know, uh, existential lesson on what it is like to be a good father and (laughs) ended up determining that I don't know, your political beliefs and your, your, the way that you go about operating in the world, that those things all, all play into it. You've got to just try and attack all the problems head first, no matter what, and try to do what you can in the world because, well, the things that were happening over there, the, the things that I guess made me anti-war also made me anti all of the things that helped to create that circumstance in the first place, all of the massive ramp up of, of, of spending and, and taxation and, and redistribution that allows for money to be funneled in that way, where human beings in another country are a necessarily useful fodder hmm. to help recycle money. Yeah. Yeah. So talk me through a little bit like I, I i could i could follow the logic but talk i think i can I, I think i could fill in the logic but i'd love to hear you kind of explain to me how you worked from like to to pacifism being the inevitable result of of empathy sort of yeah <laughs> yeah Curious sure so um uh mostly because my experience was that of having directly affected other people's lives in a negative way, right? Just in, in this kind of brash and brute way that the military kind of and, and combat makes people impact other people's lives. Um, I started thinking about it from the perspective of, oh man, well, I would really hate it if somebody did this to me, right? That, mm-hmm. and, that the the personal aspect of it is the first thing that you can kind of come to terms with and realize but but past that point uh and i'm going to be figuring this out along with you a little bit because Please. i've never thought it through step by step but uh after that you you kind of realize that it's more than just 
the physical harm to a person and the damage to their property that it was occurring. But it is also this, this tectonic shift in their life as well. And, and I started thinking about it from, man, well, there are really things that I would like to be able to do someday, right? Like, like hopes and dreams that I have and, and friends and family that I care about. And we share these stories with one another and we talk and we visit and we, we have this whole big deep life together that is so multifaceted and interesting. And I started to realize that there's just nothing special about those thoughts that go on in your own head, right? Every single person has those same thoughts. Every single person has that same breadth and depth of, of quality of life and, and interest in living that I had. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess at that point, I wasn't just thinking about, uh, how I was directly affecting people in their property, but I, I was also thinking about how I was affecting the, the, the fabric of their culture and their belief system and, and just the life of everyone there in general. Because if the things that happen in these other countries happened here, right, it would be, and as, as they have on a much smaller scale, right? But, but, but when they do happen, they, they create this, this shift in the reality of that whole community and culture, right? It, it, people rally against it, it generates hatred and fear, right? It, it creates tremendous amounts of, of chaos. And, and I got thinking about it in terms of not just hurting people, but also just hurting culture in general and, and kind of to, to go over there and, and destroy things like that, just people's lives, just damages the fabric of reality. I guess that's, that's kind of where I ended up with it. And, and I was thinking about it that way and realize that just anything that you would ever do right anything that you would ever do to just destabilize the fabric of reality for anyone for for any reason other than the absolutely most necessary and and even then right even when it's your own life i don't know man you, <laughs> you got to think it through long and hard before you decide to uh to, to put that shift on somebody else's existence and, and the, that of their families. And, and I guess that's how I ended up in pacifism at the end of all of that. I just, for everything though, right. Not just for people, but like I try not to hurt bugs on the sidewalk if I can afford it. I, mm -hmm. I don't want to hurt anything because that same, that same story that plays out for those people that's damaged by that one boot stomping down from the sky that shifted the course of their life forever likely is the case for everything, right? So for everything that you might callously step on every stink bug that you don't like, there's millions of years of evolution that resulted in um, just, just the most beautiful complex biology and capability and specialization in their own field of whatever it is that they do that you're, you just destroyed. You're like, you're speaking my language of like probably a have you ever come across a book by a fellow named bill bryson called a short history of nearly everything i have yeah and he yeah. starts out his opening chapter talking about that the miracle of like your existence you know what i mean so 
And he yeah, talks so about I've, this. I've read, I've read Walk in the Woods, but I haven't read Short History and nearly everything. But I like him. Oh, his yeah, his writing is great. So, so I, I mean, the words are not the same, but the thought that you and I have had is identical. It's it's eerie. That's why I started like almost like laughing. Like, it's eerie because like, I um I remember reading that chap like the opening chapter i kept like mulling over it and sometimes i would just like on like somebody's birthday i would copy paste this like the like this little paragraph about the miracle of evolution that led up to you like the fact that you exist is this is actually a miracle you know and um and then kind of you start i had the same sort of thought process yeah you, you extrapolate that to that's literally everything and the effect that you can have like every bug is you know, for eons, you know, there's there's more generations than you can count of insects that led to this insect being alive. You know what I mean? And you're gonna and you're gonna break that chain just because of indifference. You know what I mean? You're just gonna and and sort of a callous indifference, just carelessness. Anyways, I I had kind of the same sort of thought that you're describing, and it led me to because I was going through it was around my it was. On my fourth, I was like, like I said, I did no, I, frankly, my first three deployments, I basically had, I, I had the existential crisis. And I just had a death wish. I didn't want to commit suicide because I felt like that would be hurtful to my family and the people I cared about, but I wanted to die in a way that I thought they would find meaningful and noble. Like yeah. that was my plan. You know what I mean? Uh, and um, it wasn't until somewhere around my fourth deployment where I started really thinking along the same lines you were, and that would have been like 2012 in Afghanistan, um, where I kind of came to the conclusion that like, it, it, the words I, I would have put it in were like, well, the purpose of life isn't not to damage that's a good start frankly but like the purpose of life is to anything you interact with to somehow improve the fabric of their lives like yeah whatever things you come across in the world just do no harm at best but preferably somehow make the lives of the things you encounter in the world better you know what i mean and it's, it's eerie kind of here like it's the same i think almost in the exact same vein if not like we're, we're in the same lane of traffic going the same direction <laughs> almost you know what i mean it's, it's, it was weird hearing like my own thoughts, you know what I mean? It's just phrased differently. Sorry. Well, I've, I've never actually gone through this before, right? Yeah. So this is everything that we're talking about here is just, I mean, outside of chatting between my wife and I, who she mm -hmm. basically is me functionally because she, I don't know, she has like a map of my brain, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, outside of my wife and I really, I've never I've never walked through these steps with anybody. So it's a little janky for me to try to lay it out in words uh, because I'm trying, clear, to, but... trying to describe like a personal philosophy that has taken me a long time to kind of come to terms with. But, you know, I, that was it for me. I guess had it not been for that initial experience of, of being there in Afghanistan, of being that dude in the armor, in, in the turret of the 50 cal going through, looking at these kids, looking at our trucks, wanting us to throw jolly ranchers out to them and then just driving by right or, mm -hmm. or or just running over shit that they care about because it looks like trash dust had it not been for that experience mm -hmm. i don't know that i ever would have started down this path but 
I don't know, maybe that's because my life to that point had been worthless. And then this act of evil gave me something to spend the rest of my life trying to correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, that that's going in the episode, by the way, <laughs> that's that beautiful a way to put it. Um, um, so that's really cool. Um, so then to kind of summarize and, and, and maybe it might help if you recap this for me after I ham handedly do it, you would sort of say, that like the biggest step for you on like the path to coming towards anti-war was you were kind of in an existential crisis just so I could I'm, I'm recapping right now so when I put the episode together I can retell it in a way that flows and you'll agree with okay yeah because <laughs> we've got a lot a bunch of great parts and I end up moving parts around sometimes when I do this so that, you know because sometimes I put like the preface first and then anyways yeah um so to make sure that it, tell me if I'm wrong or where I like like you would sort of say like you were kind of in this existential crisis. You didn't really have a purpose in life, thought the army was giving you a purpose. And then you saw the army kind of being actually a malefactor. And then from there, you, when you reflected on that, you would say that you kind of started, you're just an empathetic person. You started thinking outward from the way that would affect you personally to the way it would affect everyone. And you came to this conclusion that you should never harm another person or being if you can avoid it, right? What did you say? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. You did a good job of summarizing in a minute and a half what took me 40 minutes to, to try and round out myself, but uh, no, I, I, yeah. It, it's a process. <laughs> that's it, uh, that, that was definitely it for me. I was just like a useless kid didn't know what I was doing with my life. So I enlisted as many people do. And over the course of that enlistment, I did the normal army things that everyone does and found myself in Afghanistan where I thought I was doing my job and just going through the motions and, and being hyped up about it and everything. And, and it was only after I got back and, and after having someone that I was really close with uh, uh, commit suicide, likely as a result of grappling with the same kind of crisis of conscience and meaning that, that I was experiencing then, uh, it was only then did I, did I really start to think about what the trajectory of my life to that point had really looked like. And I started to realize that the thing that I thought gave me my meaning really, really probably was not that at all. That was just, yeah, the thing that I thought gave me my meaning was just this, this life lesson. It was just this chaotic element, a bad thing that happened that I had to learn how to make the most out of. And uh, from there, I, I just tried to start figuring that out. I, I thought about it in relation to other people's families. I, and then I thought about it in relation to other people's communities. And then I thought about it in relation to the universe, ultimately, I guess, <laughs> and, and realized that if, if the trajectory of your life takes you somewhere that, that is adding more, more chaos or, or harm or pain to the world, you've got to try to work to correct that and, and kind of built up a personal philosophy of what I think it is to be a good person, thanks to a lot of people that are way smarter than me. And, and now, you know, I, I intend to work every day of my life to try to 
add more good into the world. That's great. And that'd be a great way for you to tell me like what, um, a, how to con how people can get in touch with you if they want to follow you. If you want to plug anything, you don't have to. And um, what um, like what websites or any advocacy groups that you want to refer people to so they can do some good in the world or help you do good? Uh, yeah. If you need a minute to think, you can take a minute to think too. How um, you want to say it? Hold <laughs> yeah, sure. Give me just a second. Yeah, of course. So advocacy groups. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to plug in. You know any any organizations that you think would help do good in the world that you know that you're whether you're what do you want to mention ones you're affiliated with or otherwise yeah so um right my my life outside of the army has been short and uh rife with self-introspection but the the few groups that i have gotten myself tangled up with a little bit are, are ones that i i really believe in um my my wife was uh worked worked closely with uh um, give me just a sec. Sure. Uh, court, uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, my, no, my no, wife don't worry. Was, no, worked, no. Uh, my wife worked closely with uh, court, court appointed special advocates in uh, in Maryland, mm -hmm. which is uh, they're are people who work with troubled kids, like kids that have, uh, as a result of some kind of chaos or imbalance in their family life, found themselves in the system at a young age in a way that typically adults who have had kind of felony convictions and things do. And uh, those are, are that is probably the smartest place for anyone to start is by, by getting getting involved with any local groups. Now it's, it's Casa over in Maryland, but mm -hmm. there are probably an equivalent group in, in every state, what, whatever groups they are that deal with um, the most troubled, most disturbed kids that have had the hardest lives, mm -hmm. because there are a lot of kids out there right now that, that have had in the eight years that they're alive, just, just more chaos and trauma than, than anyone that I have ever met. And that is an absolute horrible tragedy that, that anything like that could. So I don't know, try to help kids around you first and foremost. That's, yeah. that's, that's basically, and then uh, I don't know. I, I like team Rubicon. You know, I've been a member mm -hmm. with team Rubicon for a little while and uh, veterans for peace. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, they're great. Group. And, and Casa is a great group too. And you're right. That's kind of the conclusion I came to also is like, you got to start, with education, like, like education and working with children and making their lives better is like the path to change to me too. You know what I mean? And yeah, I think that's where you have to start where I think you have to try and teach kids that you, you don't have to have this crisis of meaning that the mm -hmm. world really is what you're looking at right from the get go. Stop, stop laying all these massive expectations generated by this horrible kind of depersonalized world on top of them and just let them know that really it's just going to be them out there making decisions get mm -hmm. get with them and, and give kids something worth living for especially kids that are having a tough go of it because i think if if people who care can can start to work with children and and ensure that they're having a happy life then you can probably avoid a lot of the 
horrible ringer that people have to go through to learn the lesson the hard way themselves. I mean, they still have to learn the lessons the hard way, but they really don't have to have their whole life fucked up because of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Dylan. I really appreciate this. This is awesome. And it's nice, like, it's just, well, we're going to, we're going to have to hang out sometime. I'm sure like, uh, I know there's an Eastern shore libertarian club that uh, they come over to Baltimore County sometimes. And uh, maybe we should do a crossover thing, neighbor state sort of thing at some point. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that, the, man. The, and, uh, the Maryland like libertarian, they have a summer picnic every year. That would be an easy shot for you to make it up to, too, because it's up near like Elkton kind of straight mm -hmm. shot up north for you. That would probably be easy. But uh, um, yeah, we'll have to. If And if you have any other thoughts, anything you want to share, like a book that you think is a cool anti-war book or movie, anything like that, just let, give me a holler sometime and we'll record another one of like, this is a cool thing that you should read or whatever. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, I have a. I have a lot more thoughts as it relates to just how to be a good person than I, I do really as it relates to war necessarily. Uh -huh. You know, well, either war, way. war I mean, was it, just it, the castle for me. Yeah, well, that's that's good though. In a, um, in a, in a perverse sense, you know what I mean? Um, but <laughs> thanks a lot. what it takes. Yeah, right. Uh, I really appreciate it, Dylan. And I'll be in touch again. Uh, and I'll let you know when I have everything ready. I might be able to get this out by tomorrow if I put my nose to the grindstone. And I appreciate everything, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hopefully you got something useful. Oh, I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Just listen to me rant. No, <laughs> thanks, it was man. awesome. You, you're going to, I I, can't imagine you not liking what you hear because this is, I, I love it. <laughs> it was cool. All right. Thanks a lot, thanks. man. Peace.